Psalm 8. Um, and if you need a Bible, there are some available in, on the table in the back. Uh, I'm guessing most of you at some point in your lives have been stargazing. Um, I mean, everybody does this, right? Everybody looks up at the stars. Hopefully, if you're smart about it, you just lay down on the ground instead of cricking your neck up the whole time. Uh, but, you know, find a nice, comfortable spot to lay on the grass or on a blanket. Uh, hopefully, you've been stargazing. I have a strong memory, memory of stargazing one time in college. Um, I was with some friends backpacking in the Three Sisters Wilderness Area. A lot of you are familiar with that area in uh, sort of central Oregon there down by Bend. Um, and we stayed the night pretty high up, elevation-wise, up uh, Middle Sister at a place called Camp Lake. There's a lake up there, and it's sort of the beginning of the route for climbing Middle Sister, which we were going to do the next day. And you leave super early in the morning so you can get up to the top with enough time to get back down uh, before dark. So um, planning to leave at like 3 in the morning or something like that. Uh, but the sky that night, when we were camped there at Camp Lake, it was clear and it was cold, and there was no ambient light, right? No city lights, no light pollution nearby to compete with the starlight. And I can't really explain how stunning the sky was. And maybe you've you've been in places like that. Um, but one of the surprises uh, that you get when you're out in wilderness places, away from the city lights, that you don't see when you're in closer into town, uh, one of the things that might be surprising is the color, the color in the sky from the stars, right? Uh, It isn't just all white pinpricks in the black, right? Um, It isn't just white pinpricks. Each one has a tinge from the color spectrum, and there are faint star clouds, you know, so many stars all together, but so distant and so faint that it just appears like a cloud in the sky, but really it's just a lot of stars or nebula or something. Uh, <clears throat> faint star clouds of, of yellows and reds and blues. And when you're sitting there or laying down on your back looking up at a sky like that, um, you can't get enough, right? There's something about it that you just, you have this longing for more of it. Um, and I didn't want to go to sleep. Eventually, you know, you're so exhausted that you fall asleep. Uh, but we woke up very early to start our climb, and I was trudging up the trail with my eyes enslaved to the stars up above. Um, try not to trip in the dark, of course, but uh, my eyes were just locked onto the sky because it's so fantastic. It's so beautiful. Uh, and it's normal for human beings, at least at some point in their lives. Maybe, maybe you've gotten bored with the stars. I don't know. But at least at some point, probably when you're a child, to look up on a starry night and just be captivated. Captivated by the glittering expanse. Enchanted by the subtle colors and the delicate beauty of the myriad lights twinkling against the darkness. It's wonderful. The night sky is vast. And it's fully populated in its magnitude. The moon and the uncountable numbers of stars, they move in their fixed courses with absolute perfect precision. Have you ever looked up and thought while you're staring at something like this? Have you ever looked up and thought, I am so great. I am so awesome. (laughs) I'm so important. I'm the center of the universe. I fully comprehend everything that I'm seeing going on up there in the sky above. I'm the master of all that I survey. Have you ever felt that way or thought that way, you're stargazing, 
Those would be strange thoughts to have while stargazing. Uh, stargazing is a time for holding your breath in awe of something incomprehensibly great. You look up with childlike wonder, and you're just astounded that you're even alive, and that you have eyes and the ability to appreciate and behold this immensity. That's the kind of wonder that's evoked in Psalm 8, in praise to God. So we're going to look at Psalm 8. We're going to think about that. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, as we come to your word this morning, uh, we pray that you would help us through your Holy Spirit, that the one who uh, reveals you to us would be at work in our hearts and minds, so that as we Um, come to your scripture in the name of Jesus Christ. We'd be able to understand it and be changed by it into the likeness of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. To the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when you look up, it's, it's easy for human beings, uh, for sinful human beings, to worship the things that we see in the sky, to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. There are plenty of cultures that have done so around the world. There are probably cultures that still do so uh, throughout history, certainly. Uh, it's understandable, considering the, the inaccessible wonder of the heavens. If you're going to make up some mysterious, fascinating gods to worship... Well, what more, what's more mysterious and fascinating than the lights that are in the sky, the inaccessible heavens and the lights that fill them? The old peoples looked up with questions, and they came up with mythological answers. Right? These are the gods. And in our culture, astronomers look up with similar questions that have been assigned to them by our culture, and they report back with their more scientific answers. We have better instruments that give us amazing images of what's out there, but we hope to read the skies anyway. We, we hope for the same thing, really. We look to the skies. We hope to read them for answers to some of our greatest questions, like questions of origin. What is reality? Where did it come from? How did it start? How is the earth the way that it is? And where did life come from? Is there any unique significance to humanity? We invest a lot 
in finding answers to these questions in the sky, in the stars, in the lights, just like the old peoples did, who probably were a bit more honest when they called them gods. The scriptures were written in a world where such gods were common. So in the creation account of Genesis 1, maybe that's a familiar passage to all of you, when that was written, the people of Israel had just been brought out of Egypt who had their gods of the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky, plenty of gods to cover all these lights that are hanging in the heavens. But, but the scriptures, the creation account in Genesis 1, the scriptures that come from God, they don't locate divinity in the sky. They don't locate divinity in these lights in the sky. These things were made by the one true God. The one true God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. The scriptures reveal a God who's a creator of everything, both seen and unseen, and his glory doesn't, it's not located in the heavens. You can't build a spaceship and go to the stars and find God. His glory doesn't reside in the heavens He has set his glory above the heavens. That's what this passage says. Inaccessible. You think the heavens are inaccessible. Uh, His glory is beyond them. All the wonderful, riveting beauty of the night sky, the moon and the stars, he made it all. And he set it all in place. And he set it all in motion. One billion trillion stars. That's the, the rough estimate how many stars there are in reality in the the universe? One billion trillion. That's a lot of zeros. Blazing around the globe of the earth in, in every direction, great engines of fire and light that are cast out into the void to do their dance, to follow their steps, knitted into their delicate cosmic web like little lace doilies, the work of his fingers. The work of God's fingers, that's minute work. That's effortless work. That's just for fun. There's an inconceivable scale of difference between us and the heavens when we look up. And an infinitely more inconceivable scale of difference between us and the God who made the heavens the work of his fingers. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... What is man that you are mindful of him? So when you look around with these eyes, what the psalmist is saying, David, probably the author of the psalm here, at what he's saying, when you look around with these eyes at what God has made, when you look up, the answer is easy. What are we? Nothing. Man is nothing. You look around, you look up, we're nothing. All the astronomy documentaries say it, right? You watch that stuff on OPB, Nova, or whatever, Cosmos kind of thing you're watching. When you consider the vast universe, comparatively speaking, we amount to nothing on an insignificant blue dot. And I would say in the middle of nowhere, but saying middle makes it seem more more significant than it actually is. We're just not even in the middle of nowhere. Compared to all creation, but infinitely more when compared to the Creator, we are nothing. 
It's reasonable. It's human logic. When you look at, at, at the world and all that God has made with our eyes, we're nothing. Except God says otherwise. He says something different than we can perceive in this world about who we are and what our place in the world is. With our eyes and our senses and our reason, all humanity can say about itself ultimately is meh. But God has spoken into this world, into the world that he's made. He hasn't left it to us to perceive our own place in the cosmos. He has told us our place in the creation. We have special revelation from him. That's what the scriptures are, his very word to us, so that we can know things about God and about ourselves and about the world that you can't figure out just with a microscope or a telescope. We have special revelation from him that wards off all nihilism, all meaninglessness, all purposelessness, and the, the ultimate absurdity that the world is apart from God. We have special revelation that overthrows all of those things. This word of his is the only source of our dignity, the only source of our identity. If we're left to create those things on our own, we got nothing, nothing intrinsic to us that's dignified, nothing to call our own identity. He tells us who we are, and that's what makes us who we are. That's what makes us special. And his word says, in spite of all the cosmic appearances to the contrary, when you look up and it makes you wonder, boy, who am I that God would even think about somebody like me? In spite of all of that, it says, yet, in verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Not just talking about the stars. Actually, the translators may have felt the need to be modest. The Hebrew word is Elohim. Maybe you're familiar with that as, as the word for God. It says, actually, that God made man a little lower than God. Just a little lower than God. That means more exalted than everything else. That's what that means. The scripture says that God uniquely privileged us when out of everything that he made, he made us last as the pinnacle of his creation. It says in Genesis 1, he made us in his image. It doesn't say that, that about anything else that he's made. He made us in his image. And it's because God has done this, and we know that because he's told us that he's done this. We, we know that he's said it because we have it in the scriptures that we can know the place that he has intended for us in, in the creation, in the cosmos. <clears throat> the impulse to determine your own place in God's creation is wrong. You don't have to do it. In fact, you shouldn't do it. Your impulse to determine your own place, your own identity, your own position in God's creation, it's wrong. You must submit to His Word about you. You've got to. The very idea of that, of submitting to His Word about me, that what He says about me and about humanity is true, the very idea of that goes straight against our self-exalting nature as sinners. We want to determine our place. We want to declare it. But the good news, the good news of this couldn't be better. 
God intends for you to share actually his own place in creation, in everything that he's made. He intends for you to share his place as God. His place. It says in verses 6 through 8, God, you have given him, humanity, dominion over the works of your hands. These are your, this is your stuff that you made. And you gave it all to humanity to have dominion over it. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. A lot of those things are inaccessible to us still. Um, So it is a, a marvelous thing to hear that God is the one who has put these things under our feet and given us dominion over everything that he's made. And it's an echo of the creation song, again, in Genesis 1, after God created humanity, immediately after he created them, male and female, in his image, he created them. Then he gave them his own dominion, his own authority over everything that he had made in order to exercise care and stewardship and to further cultivate order and beauty and advance the kingdom of God throughout all the world, in all the earth. Genesis 1, and this is an echo of that song in Psalm 8. You, God, have made him, humanity, a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Do you remember just a couple verses ago where the psalm says God has set his glory? You've set your glory above the heavens. God has crowned humanity with a glory that's above the heavens. So when you stargaze, as unnatural as it might seem, you are surveying your domain according to God's word. But that's hard to believe. And it is actually a matter for our faith in God's word because right now when you look with these eyes with human reason sinful broken human reason with these these senses humanity falls pretty far short of super heavenly glory and honor but God's word explains even that to us shortly after God created us in order to wear the crown of his own glory and to rule over all things with him Shortly after, we rejected him and we made a grab for our own greatness. We thought, whatever that greatness is that he's offering, we don't understand it, we don't want it, we don't believe it. Uh, We're going to do it on our own. We're going to reach out and take what we want, what we think is best. We're going to make a grab for our own greatness. And the devil had us convinced that God was being stingy with us. This God who has set all things under our feet and made us like him in his image, exalted us and crowned us with super heavenly glory and honor, He's just being stingy with you. He doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he wants to keep you down. He doesn't want you to become like him. If you take that thing, if you reach out and grab for power, then you're going to become like him, and God doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to become like him. He doesn't want to share his position with you. He had us convinced. The devil had had us convinced that if, if we became God's enemies, 
If we disobeyed and we became judges for ourselves, and we took matters into our own hands and started to exalt our, our own judgment and our own abilities and our own powers, if we disobeyed His Word and rejected that, we sought to determine our own reality for ourselves, make it up as we go along if we have to, that then we would become like God through our disobedience. Then we would become like God. But it had been God's plan all along from the very beginning to make us like Himself and to crown us with His own glory and honor. And when we sought to usurp His crown, and we divorced ourselves from Him and shut our ears to His Word, everything broke, including our relationship with God and also with the world that God gave to us. It all broke. The whole creation revolts against us, and it's a dangerous place to be, this world, because we revolted against the Creator. Our self-sufficiency, our self-will, our self-determination has been our self-destruction. In our independence from God, we've cut ourselves off from the glory for which we were created to share with God over everything that he's made. Nevertheless, even though that's been our part of the whole thing, the majestic God wouldn't let this stop him from actually crowning mankind with super heavenly glory and honor and granting him unchallenged dominion over everything that he's made. Hebrews chapter 2, the New Testament reading that Freddie read, says, At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So our insurrection, our insurrection against God, our revolt was cosmic treason leading to our death, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill all of his, in, his intentions, all of His original plans for humanity. Jesus came into the world to be the man that God wanted humanity to be. To identify Himself with us. To be one of us. And identify Himself with us in order to restore all of us. Our humanity, all of us to God's original destiny for us. So Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, you read it in the Gospels and you count up all the ways that he refers to himself, you see, um, by far his favorite self-designation is that he is the Son of Man. Our psalm says, what is, what is man that God is mindful of him and the Son of Man that God cares for him? Contrary to all appearances and our intuitions, in Jesus Christ... Man is God's beloved Son, in whom God is well pleased. In Jesus Christ, God is ever mindful of man and favors man. Humanity fills God's thoughts in Jesus Christ. The path to restoration of our humanity, it would mean Jesus coming into the world, it would mean Him suffering, our execution on our behalf, to secure our pardon because of our treason. 
And because Jesus, the perfect human being, was willing to do this, because he submitted his judgment to God his Father, because he obeyed the command of God, because he did not take matters in, of his own life and death, didn't take matters into his own hands, because he trusted his Father and he didn't grab for his own crown, God raised him to everlasting life and raised him and seated him at his own right hand. So now it says, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4 that Jesus, Jesus has ascended, not just to heaven, but far above all the heavens. Where Psalm 8 says, God's glory dwells. He has set his glory far above all the heavens. That's where Jesus is. God has crowned Jesus. His original plan for humanity. God has crowned Jesus with super heavenly glory and honor. In Jesus Christ, God has crowned humanity with his own glory. All authority, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And the New Testament sees this psalm, Psalm 8, as a promise that believers will one day share in Jesus' cosmic rule. We have no idea what that will look like when all things are put in subjection under our feet. All of our enemies, even the devil and death himself, defeated once and for all. The whole cosmos laid out before us. We don't really know what it'll look like. We don't yet see it. That's not what we can perceive with our senses right now. We don't yet see everything in subjection to us, but one day we will. But in a sense, we do share Christ's crown of glory, even now. And we share it vicariously, because right now he's the only one who's got that crown. He's the only one who's ascended far above all the heavens and crowned with glory and honor in God's presence. But we share it spiritually. Jesus has been seated at God's right hand. And through our spiritual union with him, or actually through faith, the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus. We also have been seated with him in the heavenly places. Paul says this. He says it in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. We have been seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. So what does that mean? What does that mean for right now? What does it look like in this world for people like us to share Christ's crown of glory spiritually now? It means we live like kings. I don't mean what you probably hear when you hear that phrase, someone's living like a king. You just picture a gluttonous, self-seeking, power-grabbing earth king. That's not what I mean. I mean, we live like the king who ascended far above all the heavens and was crowned with glory because he was the good son. Because he lived in perfect dependence on his father, as a, as a child does. Because he submitted himself to God's will, even when it meant his death for love's sake. That's what it means to live like kings, to live like the king. God intends for us to share his own place in creation. What does his own place in creation look like? Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection, his serving and his suffering and his forgiving and his self-giving and his death, sacrificial death, and his resurrection and his ascension following that. 
So Paul writes, uh, with these things in mind, I think, in Colossians chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you. And then he lists a whole host of things that are antithetical to God's heavenly glory. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. That, that's not becoming of kings. Put on then, Colossians 3, verse 12, continuing here. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That's what it means to live like kings in this world. After the image of Christ the King. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, kingly virtue, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So sharing Christ's crown of glory, spiritually, right now, means the divine royal strength that looks like weakness and vulnerability in this world. It's the kingliness that looks like self-sacrificial, suffering love. Jesus talks about that all the time when he talks about his kingdom and his his kind of kingliness. He says in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not those who grab for the earth and try to take it over by force. The meek are going to inherit the earth. All things. So against the strong, the strong, the mighty, against the great ones who are all trying to usurp God's right and rule and take it for themselves. Jesus says those who embrace his rule like dependent children will be established as those with true kingly authority and power. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Among the offspring of all God's creatures, all of God's creatures have, according to their kind, they have offspring in order to perpetuate their races. Among the offspring of all God's creatures, human babies are extraordinarily, exceptionally vulnerable and dependent, much longer than other creatures' offspring. Human babies serve as the perfect example for God's kind of kingly strength, which is contrary to the strength of his enemies. In babies, God has established what his strength looks like. This is what his strength really looks like. And how it triumphs over all who are hostile to him who take judgment into their own hands. The majestic strength of God, whose glory is above the heavens. It looks like him actually becoming an infant to save the world 
a weak, vulnerable, dependent baby. The majestic strength of God, whose glory is above the heavens, looks like, looks like little children singing the praises of Christ, while Christ's strong enemies despise him for associating with the lowly and the weak. It says in Matthew 21, Jesus quotes this, uh, Psalm 8, <clears throat> says that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise? The majestic strength of God his kind of strength, his kind of kingly glory that's set above the heavens, it looks like every believer becoming dependent on him and vulnerable in love. Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus instructed them that the politics of heaven is pretty different from the politics of this world. They're asking, who's most like the king of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, most like the king. The majestic strength that's established by God whose glory is too high for us. His kind of strength, his kind of kingliness can overthrow the strong by the weak. Can overthrow and bring down the wise by the foolish. It says in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Consider your calling, brothers. Talking to everybody in the church there in Corinth, really it's applicable to all of us. Consider your particular calling. The way God called you into a relationship with himself, God called you into his kingdom. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Not, you're not great ones in the world's eyes. Great ones don't come to church. They don't come into the kingdom of God. They don't want to. Because all of this kingdom of God stuff is totally antithetical to the world's idea of greatness and power. And you weren't that. You weren't wise or powerful or noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that the Lord Jesus had said to him, My power is made perfect in weakness. Weakest means work out your will, mighty enemies to still, we sang from Psalm 8. So who are we in and of ourselves? Nothing. 
Who are we when you compare us to the strong and the mighty in this world? Nothing. Who are we when we look to the heavens? Who are we in comparison? We're nothing. When we think of the God whose glory is above the heavens, who are we that, that He should be mindful of us? Really, we're nothing. Yet God is the Creator who made everything out of nothing. And in Christ, He makes a new creation out of nothing, out of people like you and me. In Christ, He makes strength out of the weak, out of people like you and me. In Christ, He takes people who have no honor, and He crowns us with His super heavenly glory. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would keep your word ever in our hearts and in our minds, your word that determines our reality for us. Otherwise, we would forget. We look around and we're overwhelmed by all the things that uh, attest to our nothingness. But your word says that uh, you have made something out of people like us. You've established your own strength in people like us. You've sent your Lord Jesus, uh, your Son, our Lord Jesus, for people like us. In order to exalt people like us, even above the heavens, and crown us with your own glory and honor. These things are not intuitive for us. It is very easy for us to forget these things. So we pray that you would impress them deeply in our hearts and our minds through the power of your Holy Spirit who uses your word to that end so that we can go forth in this world praising your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.